Uh, today's scripture reading is from the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 6, verse 12 through chapter 7, verse 9. And it be found on page 1131 in the Bible underneath the seat in front of you. Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food for the stomach and the stomach for food, but God will destroy them both. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in the body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body. But he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Now for the matters you wrote about, it's good for a man not to marry. But since there is so much immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife with her husband. The wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. Do not deprive each other except by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all men were as I am, but each man has his own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I am. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. This is the word of the Lord. We're in the midst of a sermon series right now that we started last Sunday. The series entitled, What the Bible Really Says About. And we're looking at four different provocative topics this month in the first Sunday of May. Last Sunday, if you were here, we started it by looking at what the Bible says about the afterlife. Next week, Matt Ryman's going to preach on what the Bible really says about politics. And then the first Sunday of May, when we wrap up this series, I'm going to preach on the subject of what the Bible really says about Christians. The reason for that, it might puzzle you a little bit, uh, but the reason for that one is that research shows that the number one problem that non-Christians have with the church is Christians. So we're going to talk about that on May the 2nd. The purpose of this series is really a part of our four-week challenge. Some of you might have been here for the very first time on Easter Sunday, and if you were, you remember that I said, why don't you come back for the next four weeks and check us out? Just no obligation, check us out and find out more about UPC, and I'll tell you four things that uh, the Bible talks about. Well, today's subject is probably the most provocative of them all. It's the subject of sex. We're going to talk about this morning what the Bible says about sex. When that word is spoken in church, everybody just sort of gets real quiet. 
maybe even a little bit nervous. Like, what's he going to talk about? Uh, I don't know about you, but in my family, growing up as a kid, we never talked about this. This was as far away from our conversation as possible. I remember the day when my dad uh, said, hey, Mike, I was about 16 years old. Hey, Mike, uh, hop in the car. Let's go for a ride. And we drove out into the country, and my dad stopped the car, uh, said to me, do you have any questions? And I said, uh, no. And he started the car up again, and home we went. I am not exaggerating. That was my sex talk as a young, young guy. So if that gives you any, any hope for your own sexual brokenness, I certainly have plenty of mine to deal with. But uh, today what I want to do is kind of cut to the chase. Talk about what the Bible says about sex in three ways. I'd like to share first that sex is good, second that it's broken, and third that it is being redeemed. So pull out a sheet of paper there. You have a little blank space on your sermon discussion guide. It might help you to take some notes. First thing we want to learn from this text that Tim read is that sex is good. Sex is good. That alone is worth uh, the whole sermon. Now, Paul wrote this letter to a group of Christians who lived in a city known as Corinth. Corinth is a wealthy, major city on the coast of southern Greece. And if you read through the book of Acts, you find out that Paul lived there for about a year and a half, building a church, planting a church, making disciples, and then Paul left. And after he left Corinth, the believers in Corinth wrote him a letter. And in this letter to Paul, they asked him a number of different questions. 1 Corinthians is his response to those questions. There are a lot of different matters, and this one that we're looking at today is just one of many different questions that they asked Paul. Now, you need to know that Corinth was entrenched in the pagan, immoral culture of the day. We're talking about first century Roman Empire, a lot of Greek thought, And one of the prevailing philosophies was Greek dualism. I don't know if you've ever heard of that, but let me tell you what Greek dualism was. It was a system of thought that separated the spirit from the body. In other words, it said that spirit is good, but the body is bad. Spirit is good, matter is evil. Spirit is immortal. It will live on beyond the grave, but the body perishes with your death, never to be seen again. The body is just that unimportant. It rots in the grave, and that's it. No resurrection in the future like we talked about last week. So this kind of thinking, this dualistic thinking, body over here, spirit over there, begged the question, all right, what are you supposed to do with your bodily appetites? Things like hunger and thirst and sex and other human drives. And the pagan culture in which Paul lived provided two opposing answers to that question of what do you do about your bodily appetites. One of their answers was called hedonism and the other was called asceticism. And both of them were pagan ways of answering the question, what do you do about your body? Paul addresses both of those attitudes in this text that we're studying this morning. 
The way he does it is by quoting the popular sayings that each school of thought had. Let's first look at the school of the hedonists. What did the hedonists say? Well, look at chapter 6, verse 12. Here is one of their popular sayings. And that's why you see in the Bible that it's in quotation marks. This was a popular way of talking about it from the viewpoint of hedonism. Chapter 6, verse 12, they said, everything is permissible for me. See, that's hedonistic thinking. The, the hedonists that lived around, in and around Corinth were saying something like, everything is permissible. Since the body is not important, since matter doesn't matter, you can do whatever you want to with your body. After all, sex is an appetite. It's just like hunger, just like thirst. It's no big deal. That's what the hedonists were saying. It's no big deal. If it feels good, do it, was the first century version of what we've heard a lot in our time. And Paul's answer to the hedonists is given first in verse 12, the next part of the verse. He says, yeah, but everything is not beneficial. See, it's kind of a yes, but answer. Everything may be permissible. Okay, I'll go that far with you, he says, but you shouldn't be under the control of anything. Paul is saying to these hedonists that a life of self-indulgence is not good. In fact, it can hurt you. It is not beneficial. Well, then the hedonists had another common saying. And it's given to us in verse 13. This saying was, food for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy them both. Now see, if you're looking at a new international version Bible, you notice that I believe that the quotation goes all the way to the end of the sentence. So the whole quotation, the whole saying in verse 13 was, food for the stomach, the stomach for food, God will destroy them both. That was the way the hedonists used to talk. In other words, they were saying, you were made for sex just like the stomach was made for food. You want sex, you need sex, therefore you should have sex with whomever and whenever and wherever you want. That was the hedonistic way of thinking. Paul's answer to that saying is given to us in the rest of verse 13. He says, wait a second. The body was not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. Now, I want us to dwell on that phrase, sexual immorality, for a moment. It's the Greek word porneia. You've heard, of course, the word pornography. This is where we get the word pornography. It's the Greek word porneia. But it doesn't mean just pornography. In fact, the Greek word porneia was the broadest possible term for sexual activity between two people who were not married in the Greek vocabulary. Say that again. The word porneia in Paul's day was the broadest possible term for sexual sin in the Greek language. It included sexual activity of any kind either by oneself or with another person to whom you were not married. So Paul is saying to the hedonist, hey, look, sex is a big deal. There are boundaries to sex, he is saying. There are standards for sex. It's not just about satisfying your physical appetite. Later on, verse 15 of the same chapter, 
Paul says, don't you know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a porne? Same word that we looked at a moment ago, porne. Instead, it is translated as prostitute here in verse 15. Prostitution was legal in Paul's day in Corinth. In fact, there were hundreds of prostitutes in Corinth and men were actually encouraged to use their services. But Paul says, is it okay to have sexual relations with prostitutes? And we might as well broaden that to say, is it okay to have porneia, sexual activity of any kind, outside of marriage? His his answer is, never. Never. So that's Paul's response to hedonism. Some people have then said, okay, Paul seems like a real hardliner here. Paul seems to leave no room, you know, for sexual activity. So he must have been an ascetic. He must have been one who joined with the ascetics, who denied themselves any kind of sex. Well, is that true? No, it is not true because in the next chapter, chapter 7, Paul takes on the ascetics too. So let's move on there. Look at chapter 7, verse 1. Here is what the ascetics said. Paul says in chapter 7, verse 1, Now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to marry. All right, now here's what I'm going to say. I think it's unfortunate that the New International Version treats verse 1 that way. They make it out to be something that Paul is teaching, that it's good for a man not to marry. The fact is, notice some of you have a marginal reading. The marginal reading is the better one. That is actually a quotation That the ascetics were saying that it's good for a man not to marry. So what Paul is doing is he's saying, now I'm going to talk about the things you wrote about. And here's the first one. This common saying, this proverb that the ascetic camp puts out there in the culture. Namely, they're saying that it's good for a man not to marry. And literally, literally the Greek language is, They're saying that it's good for a man not to touch a woman. And the word touch is just another way of saying to have sex with. Am I making sense? So the ascetics were actually teaching the culture, don't have sex at all. Not even with your spouse. Yeah, believe it or not, the ascetic people believed that sex was defiling. And that even if you're married, well, you can have sex to have children... But don't have sex for pleasure because it's not pleasure. It's actually defiling. Remember, body was bad. Body was, was not important. What matters is spirit. So the ascetic school of thought said that the body is evil. Only spirit is good. Therefore, you should deny your bodily appetites and cultivate the life of the spirit. So even if you're married, sex is really ugh, maybe a necessary evil, but something that you should try to avoid. See, that's the opposite of what the hedonists were saying, right? Hedonists saying, have it all you want. It's a great appetite. Just indulge. Ascetics were saying, deny. It's bad. It's evil. You're more spiritual if you avoid it. Don't try to, don't try to live the sexual life. That's a defiling way to look at life. Two different opposing answers. So what's Paul's answer to the ascetics? Well, it's in verses 2 and 3. Notice verse 2, he says, Since there's so much immorality, and there's the word porneia again, 
since there's so much porneia, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. See what Paul is saying to the ascetics? He said, no, no. Sex is part of marriage. He even calls it a duty. And don't, don't take that to mean like a duty, a drudgery. He means it's supposed to happen. It's a good thing. And this was a shocking way to think about sex in that culture. Paul is saying sex is good. It's intended for pleasure, not just procreation. And it's a vital part of the marriage relationship. Not only that, Paul is actually teaching the equality, the full absolute equality of men and women here. He says in verse 3 that husbands and wives owe sex to each other. He says in verse 4 that the wife's body belongs to her husband and the husband's body belongs to his wife. Now look, most non-Christian men who would have heard this from Paul would have been stunned to think that their bodies belong to their wife. Keep in mind, this was a highly patriarchal society. Everything revolved around the needs and the wants of men. Paul says in verse 5 that the only time that husbands and wives ought to abstain from sex is when they both agree to abstain for the purpose of some spiritual discipline. But then only briefly. Because if, if, you, if you don't, if you abstain and you're married, you're actually depriving each other. The word is defrauding each other. You're stealing from each other. So do you notice then that Paul gives a very high exalted view of sex here? It may be in different words than you and I would choose. But clearly in contrast to the culture in which Paul lived, this is a high view of sex. Paul is saying that the hedonists are wrong for believing that sex was just an appetite. And he's saying that the ascetics were wrong for saying that you should never even have sex. And Paul's answer to both groups is sex is good. So good, in fact, that you should not abuse it on the one hand and so good that you should enjoy it with your spouse on the other. Paul's teaching, was it just for the first century? No, it's just as applicable to our culture as it was to theirs. After all, in our day, Right here in America, we have both groups well represented. Let's call the, uh, the hedonists, the modern day version of the hedonists, are the liberals, the libertines, who have this liberal view of sex. They say, sex is just an appetite, so don't put any boundaries around it. Your body is not important. Now, they wouldn't say that, but that's really what they're meaning. That's what they're communicating. Your body is not important. Just give it to anybody. Just give it, share it with anybody, whether he's really committed to you or not. Whether she really cares for you or not. Just give your body to anybody. The first person that comes along. If you like it, do it. Modern day hedonism. We have the liberals. But on the other hand. The, and, and this is the group to which we're more uh, inclined. You have the conservatives. Well represented by modern day evangelical fundamentalists. Who are saying sex is bad. Now, they may not say it so many words, but that's what they're communicating. Sex is bad. Stay away from it. It's shameful. Do it if you must. Do it if you want to have children, but don't enjoy it. And don't talk about it, especially at church. Now, look, I know we don't go around saying this, but the fact that we rarely talk about it with our Christian friends, 
and rarely bring it up here. What is that, what is that saying to our culture? It must be shameful. It's so private. It must be dirty. I dare not admit that I like it. Liberals and conservatives. Do you know what the Bible says? Sex was God's idea. It was God's idea in the first place. It's part of our humanness. It's part of our creation in the image of God. God has given to us human beings this incredible capacity not only to procreate, but to have intense sexual pleasure and passion. After all, didn't he put a book in the middle of our Bibles about sex? The Song of Solomon, a highly erotic book about marital sex. Sex is good. That's the good news. Now let's turn our attention to the bad news. Because there is bad news that Paul is talking about in this text. And the bad news is that sex is broken. Sex is definitely very broken. Paul says in chapter 6 verse 18 to flee porneia. He wouldn't even need to say that if sex were not broken. Flee sexual immorality, he says in chapter 6, verse 18. Like all God's good gifts, sex has been marred and deeply broken by sin. From the Hooters billboards that grab men's attention to the women's magazines that scream about all kinds of sexual things in the grocery store checkout lanes, from music videos to sexting to YouTube to internet porn sites to college spring break rituals. Our culture is overflowing with sexual images and experiences and ideas and opportunities that ruin the beautiful biblical picture. It comes home to you if you just pay attention. In no time at all. For example, last Monday night, I'm a 24 devotee. Maybe some of you watch 24. Monday night last week, how many of us who watched 24 rejoiced when Jack Bauer finally got the girl? It's been how many seasons? How many years? How many awful things has he been through? All these women just... Get taken away from him. Finally, he gets the girl. But what do we mean by that? What what happened? He took Renee to bed. The biblical picture is that that's porneia. Sexual activity with someone to whom you're not married. And yet, what was our reaction? Oh, how nice. How great. Way to go, Jack. See, that we are so inoculated against sin. This allergy that I was trying to tell the children about. We've gotten so far away from God as a culture. It's not even sinful to us anymore. It's something to celebrate. The hedonists of Paul's day would love living in America. Whatever you wish, you can gratify your sexual desires. Illicitly, illicitly, anonymously, and in ways guaranteed to permanently damage both you and those you love. I'll bet we could go around the room this morning 
and share story after story of people who are casualties of the sexual revolution that started in the 60s. And my story would be right there among yours. Casualties. We're limping today. We're broken today. We have mental images in our heads that we can't get away from. We have memories and regrets, abuse in our background, all because of the brokenness of the beautiful picture that God gave us of sex. But of course, it started a lot longer ago than the 60s. Sexual brokenness dates back to the Garden of Eden. Because Adam and Eve had no sooner disobeyed God than they covered up their private parts and hid from God and hid from each other. Sexual delight became shame. Romance became revenge. And we've been paying for it ever since. Ever since Adam and Eve's sin, we are born into this world, like I told them, allergic to God. But what I really mean now is that we're born sexual sinners. And every one of us has to do, that, do business with sexual brokenness. Apart from God's intervening grace, we would do one of two, two things. We would either run away from sex in disgust or we would spend our lives using people for our own sexual gratification. And worst of all, worst of all, we have redefined sex as a purely physical act intended for self-fulfillment and self-expression rather than seeing it as the mutual self-giving love between a man and a woman in the context of the marriage covenant. Now you say to me, boy, you sound like a dinosaur. Where do you get the thing about sex only within marriage? It's right here in the text. Look at chapter 6, verse 16. And this is the, the teaching, the consistent teaching of the Bible. This is a series called What the Bible Says About. This is what the Bible presents. Chapter 6, verse 16 says... Paul is quoting the Old Testament and he says the two will become one flesh. Now where's Paul getting that? He's getting it from Genesis chapter 2 where God first instituted marriage. Genesis 2.24 says that a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. That is the biblical picture of sex. What does it mean? Here's what it means. It means that sex is more than merely a pleasurable experience or a physical act. It's much more. It's the union of of two whole beings, two whole people. The word flesh, it doesn't mean just body parts. Instead, it includes the whole person, the body, the mind, the will, the heart, everything. This is the exalted way the Bible pictures sex, you see. It's never casual. Take casual sex out of your vocabulary. That's an oxymoron. That doesn't work. There's nothing casual about it. Someone has called sex a self-commitment involving the entire person, the full giving of the entire self to the one to whom you belong. And our culture has it backwards. Our culture says it's okay if intimacy precedes commitment. The Bible says commitment precedes intimacy. People today think that you can just move in together and live together without marriage, enjoying the advantages of marriage without the commitment. God says, "Uh uh-uh, sorry. It does not work that way. Commitment must precede 
intimacy, or else it's porneia. I love how Tim Keller puts it. He says this, and I quote, Before you experience sex with someone, you have to give away your independence. You must become legally, economically, socially, emotionally, and in every way committed to that other person. In other words, before you get physically vulnerable to another person, you must get vulnerable to him or to her with your whole life. And we have a word for that. It's called marriage. I am committing to you my whole being. I am making myself vulnerable economically, physically, emotionally, spiritually, and in every other way. And as part of that commitment, we can enjoy the sexual relationship. You must stand before your family, your community, your friends, and your God and say, I, John, take you, Mary, to be my wife. Any other form of sexual expression that is private, independent, disconnected from marriage, and self-indulgent is, according to Scripture, porneia, sexual immorality. And by the way, even married persons can easily commit porneia if they engage in sexual activity that is private and independent and disconnected from their spouse. Commitment precedes intimacy. And that reflects how broken we are. So how in the world are we going to be able to live out the biblical ideal? Well, here's the good news. Sex we've seen is good, but it's broken. But even better news is this, that sex is being redeemed. Sex is being redeemed. Jesus Christ came to earth not only to die on the cross to forgive you of your sins... He came to earth and died on the cross and rose again in order to make all things right, including our sexuality. Jesus is in the business of redeeming, repairing all things broken. Is sex broken? Absolutely. Can Jesus redeem it? Can he repair it and fix it? Absolutely he can. How? How? Well, let me just mention two ways. I could say more. We could talk about the things that you could do preemptively to flee sexual immorality. That could be possibly a whole other sermon. But let me focus instead on just two things that are ways that Jesus can redeem and does redeem our sexuality. Number one, he does it through Christian community. Jesus can fix your sexual brokenness through authentic, genuine Christian community. How do I see that in this text? Well, look at chapter 7, verse 7. And here's a very strong hint of what I'm saying. Chapter 7, verse 7, Paul says, I wish that all men were as I am, but each man has his own gift from God. One has this gift and another has that. Now, earlier today, I said that Paul paints a very high, exalted picture of marriage. But, you know, Paul was single, right? Paul was single. Some scholars believe he might have been a widower. There's no way to know that. But whatever the case, Paul was single. And in this passage, Paul paints an equally high, exalted picture of singleness. In this verse, for example, he's saying there are some real advantages to being single. In verse 8, he says, it is good. Underline the word good. 
it is good for people to stay unmarried, as I am. And later on in the chapter, he's going to say, verses 32 through 35, that a single person can be more devoted to God than a married person can be. So I'm speaking to today to many single people. I want you to hear Paul is painting an exalted view of singleness. He is saying that it's quite possible to live out your entire life without ever being sexually intimate with another person and still have a fulfilling, gratifying life. How? You're probably thinking, I don't believe that. But it's true. Look at the word gift in verse 7. The word gift is the Greek word charisma. We get the word charismatic from that or charisma. It's a word that means a supernatural gift of grace. It's intended for the building up of the body of Christ. Some people are gifted for singleness. Others are gifted for marriage. The point is, Paul says, live out of your unique giftedness. Live out of your unique calling in interdependence with other members of the body. This is a call not just for me to live my individual life and enjoy my individual gift. This is a calling to share my gift and make a contribution to the body of Christ. In other words, marrieds and singles need each other. We have something important to contribute to each other and to the larger body of Christ called the church. You know, it's often said that the church is the most racially segregated institution on earth. It might just be true that it's also the most segregated when it comes to marrieds and singles. Now, I'm glad a lot of you mix up with people who are married, you single, and you who are single, you mix it up with marrieds and so on and so forth. Some of your life groups have both marrieds and singles. That's good. Because what Paul is saying is that we're all married to the church in a very real sense. We're married to the church. We need each other. We need singles. We need marrieds. We ought to be integrating ourselves into one another's lives, learning from each other, helping each other. We ought to be doing life together. We ought to be inviting each other into our homes instead of single friends always getting together, married friends always getting together. See, Paul in verse 7 is saying this is a joint project, this thing about sexual purity. Let's share our giftedness with one another and be part of the project together. As we integrate, we will be growing in holiness and growing in sexual wholeness. But secondly, how does Jesus redeem our broken sexuality? Not only by community, but through faith in the gospel. You know, we get there in every sermon because this is the key to the Christian life. Through faith in the gospel, you get to sexual wholeness. It says in chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. You know what we've done with those two verses? We've immediately turned it into nothing but an imperative. Honor God with your body. Come on, guys, get together. Honor God with your body. God, you know, doesn't live in dirty temples. So come on, stop doing it. Keep your hands off that girlfriend of yours. Uh, You're not your own. Stop it. Stop it. Just say no. We turn it into an imperative instead of reading it through the indicative. Paul says, remember who you are. 
You are a temple in which the Spirit of God resides. God lives inside you. And even more amazingly, Jesus has bought you with the price of his own blood. He has united you with himself in a relationship of intimate, self-giving love. In a very real sense, Jesus is your spouse. You're the bride of Christ. Therefore, therefore, you see the therefore comes afterwards. Therefore, honor God with your body. Friends, there is no way to live the Christian life, particularly in this area, if you're always living out of do's and don'ts, oughts and shoulds. Believe the gospel, the good news of Jesus' love. There's incredible power in believing what God says about you. How? Well, next time you're tempted toward porneia, next time you're sitting at the computer, you're watching TV, cable, whatever, you're with your date, next time you're tempted toward porneia, if you will simply say what those verses say, I am a temple of the Holy Spirit. Jesus died to save and redeem me. He is here with me. He's here with me right now. He couldn't love me anymore. He'll never love me any less. In light of all that, how could I dishonor him? How could I unite these hands, these eyes, this mind, this art with porneia? Never. See, there's power in believing the gospel and reciting it to yourself. I suspect that I am speaking this morning to not a few people who are very weary of this battle with porneia. Am I right? You're so weary, you've grown discouraged. Maybe you live in despair about it. You wonder if you'll ever get the upper hand. You, along with that, I bet you feel very ashamed of yourself, your failures, your losses. You're fearful that God has given up on you, that he doesn't love you anymore. And so you've gone undercover. You dare not... Let anybody know the truth. You're hiding from God. You're hiding from other people. I want to say to you this. The path to sexual wholeness is through the cross. It's through the cross. So don't give up on yourself. God has not given up on you. He never will. Jesus died on the cross for every one of your sins, including your sexual ones. And he's taken them in far, as far away as east is from west away from you. He's your great high priest. Depend on him. Run to Him. Go to the cross. He understands what it's like. He believes in you. He is with you in the battle. And He is not a deserter. So keep on fleeing from porneia. Yes. But when you're fleeing from porneia, flee to Jesus. Flee to the cross. He bought you with a price. And He'll never, ever give you up. Let's pray. Lord, I'm so aware of the high calling you've given us. It just proves once again that we need Jesus. We need Jesus terribly. God, thank you for the good gift of sex. Thank you for dying for all our sins, even our sexual ones. Thank you, Jesus, for coming to earth to fix what is broken. And thank you that one day we're going to be set free, set free from temptation. We will enjoy each other in unashamed joy and freedom. And sit down together at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Lord, in the meantime, would you send your spirit to empower us to flee sexual immorality. And help our church to be a place of sexual healing. Help us be a church that does more than say, just say no. Lord, help us love single people and married people equally. Help, them, help us to give them equal honor. 
Help us preach the gospel to ourselves and each other in this area of sexual sin. Would you enable us to build a biblical balanced view of sexuality? And God, help us be different from our culture. Use us, Lord, to redeem the brokenness of East Orlando and set our city on a course of freedom and hope. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.